The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone from Metropolitan New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a new episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have, over the course of this program, which now spans close to four years, uh, entertained a number of topics, some of which have been controversial and some of which have engaged in uh, contemporary discussions of the emergence of the human condition. And uh, this is a topic that has received a tremendous amount of attention in the past couple or five years, uh, especially with developments um, in, in the rapidly expanding field of human evolution and a number of other issues related to archaeology and uh, the evolution of uh, societies, uh, physically the evolution of the human form and a social organization. And uh, today's discussion is a little bit novel because we are talking about, uh, we're going to talk to um, an expert on such matters whose uh, perspectives on these developments are a little bit different from some others. I'll, I'll start with that. And uh, we will discuss them and we will explore them in some detail. My guest is uh, Dr. Richard Currier, who received his bachelor's and Ph.D. in Social and Cultural Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley, and he specialized in world ethnography, culture change, human interaction, and has undertaken research in Mesoamerica and the Greek islands. Uh, He uh, was involved in academic research for the early part of his career and then transferred his attention to the design and development of interactive learning technology and has recently gone back to getting into anthropology and archaeology and has published a book that has just come out entitled Unbound, How Eight Technologies Made Us Human, Transformed Society, and Brought Our World to the Brink. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Richard Currier. Thank you for appearing on the program. Thank you, Dr. Schuldenrein. Thank you for having me. 
So let's begin with uh, your volume. Uh, well, let, let, let's go back. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You were in anthropology. You did it for a long time, and then you, you moved into interactive learning technology, and then you went back to, uh, to anthropology. How did, how did that career track take root? Well, I've always been kind of a rebel, so after uh, almost 20 years uh, teaching and doing research in anthropology, I got a little bit restless, and I wanted to do my own thing. I, uh, I've always been interested in technology, and this was in the 1980s when uh, uh, the computer, personal computer technology, and especially multimedia technology was in its infancy, and I didn't want to miss out on that, so I, I jumped into that uh, originally through an article I wrote for High Technology Magazine. And then I uh, uh, formed a department at a state university, uh, the California State University uh, Consortium at Long Beach. And we produced a bunch of uh, very novel and uh, groundbreaking uh, interactive learning programs. This was before there was a Macintosh. Uh, before the PC was even a, had a standard operating system, and we were doing point-and-click graphical interfaces and all that kind of wonderful stuff uh, back in the early 80s. So uh, it was an exciting time for me, an exciting opportunity, and I stuck with it for quite a while. But uh, uh, the, the technology and the field matured. There weren't, weren't a lot of new um, things to do in it, and I felt the pull of my old love of anthropology and especially all the wonderful, new, exciting discoveries in human evolution that were coming out. Uh, finally, I just uh, uh, gave, gave in to the impulse and uh, closed down my consulting practice, stopped doing uh, interactive learning and plunged headfirst back into anthropology, which is uh, where I am now and where I intend to stay for the duration. Well, I have to say, I think it's uh, actually a wonderful uh, series of life transitions, if you will, career transitions, because certainly the world of anthropology and the world of archaeology is not what it was way back when you started out and basically when I started out. And I think that exposure to the so-called real world gives you uh, a perspective that one doesn't get in the academic sphere and allows you to uh, come in contact with people who really need to know these things that we do as anthropologists and archaeologists. And I just think it's uh, it's the wave of the future anyway. So to me, it sounds like you're a pioneer and a precursor to, uh, to the way people's careers are going to emerge uh, going forward. So I certainly think that's a, a wonderful track because well, you're, you. pro you're reaching a different audience uh, yeah. than the traditional academic circle, which is, as we both know, and, and a lot of our listeners also know, is uh, to some degree, uh, I, will, I don't want to call it incestuous, but the communication very often stays within the community unless somebody is, gets a little bit bold and ventures out. So I think that's a wonderful thing to happen. Exactly. Well, thank you. Having said that, I would like to discuss just the title of this uh, volume, which came out uh, a month or two ago, something like that? Yes, just in late August. Okay. How eight, tech, 
Right. It's called Unbound again. It's, again, it's called Unbound, how a technology has made us human, transformed society, and brought our world to the brink. So the obvious question is to the brink of? Well, to the brink of planetary catastrophe. Okay. So this is this is sort of a fatalistic kind of a perspective, I guess. Huh? Well, not, not not entirely. I my the last chapter of my book uh is a kind of summation of all the problems that we have caused for the planetary biosphere, we humans, um largely through our uh technologies that have uh, freed us, actually, and this is where the title Unbound comes in, it has, it has disconnected us from the natural constraints that limit all other animal species. And so we have not only begun to multiply uh, without any kind of uh, limitation that other species always run up against when they start multiplying, uh, but we've uh, actually taken all the Earth's environments and converted just about all of them to our own purposes. Uh, so the upshot is that we have overpopulation, we have deforestation, we have pollution, atmospheric and oceanic pollution, we have, uh, and we have, of course, climate change. And all of these things are destabilizing the ecosystems of the natural world, and we don't know where it's going to end, but uh, right now we're not on a good pathway. Uh, at the same time, uh, in my last chapter, I do uh, acknowledge that there are that this is basically within our own control, that it's not a question of the world being out of control. It's a question of humanity being out of control. And just as we are um, overrunning the planet, we can make a decision consciously to step back and to restore uh, sanity to our, uh, our, our time on Earth. And I think that's an invaluable perspective. I would suggest, however, that by and large, I think it's creeping into the mentality of most people that our transformation of ecosystems and our transformations of landscapes and, as you, you indicated, going to climate is very clearly something that would you say, well, let me ask you, would you say most people are starting to get a grasp on it, or, or is it still considered outside of the mainstream to hold those oh, no. positions? Oh, no. I think it's very much mainstream, especially in the younger generations. Right. I don't think you would find too many millennials who would dispute the, uh, uh, the inevitability of planetary um, uh, Problems, but at the same time, uh, I think that it's mainly in North America and Western Europe that people have accepted this uh, situation as an inevitable uh, consequence of our modern times. I think that uh, the developing world is still too focused on its own economic problems and solving its economic and healthcare problems, uh, but they will come along. In another 50 or 75 years, I think the whole world will be uh, singing the same tune. 
The question is, of course, and, and this is a, a topic that's uh, very, very much in the forefront in the news and all over the world. Can we make it for another 75 years with the types of uh, parallel developments in population growth in places like India and China, where they're just store, sort of starting to catch up and are reluctantly, reluctantly if you will, transitioning into uh, consciousness and awareness of the types of dangers that, as you said, people in Western Europe and most of North America are already very, very familiar with. Uh, Are we going to make make that? That that becomes a a major question and one that I I would like to explore in the future. But um, after the break, which is uh, about to come up right now, you, from what I can tell, are talking about these developments and these mentalities and, and mental templates that you can apparently uh, track to some very early developments going back to human evolution and uh, probably, from what I'm guessing, the early beginnings of culture and adaptation. So uh, after we get back, uh, after these words, we will talk to uh, Dr. Richard Courier about his eight technologies that collectively and individually seem to have transformed the world in which we live in and have caused, uh, for lack of a better word, major turning points in the human condition. We'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, baby? 
This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with a fascinating discussion about an upcoming book that has been authored that has been authored by Dr. Richard Currier, who is an anthropologist and researcher, and has issued a volume called "Unbound: How Eight Technologies Made Us Human." transformed society and brought our world to the brink and in our first segment we discussed what the brink was and of course as as many of you who have listened to the program and uh, digested some of the issues that we have uh, discussed surrounding developments and evolutionary transformations in the human condition many of this ranges from uh, the evolution of the human form to the emergence of complex societies and the interaction of course of humans with their environment and and we had discussed the significance of climatic change which we had indicated or had suggested was certainly one of the issues that bring us to the brink and we had discussed the fact that it's not not all hope is lost because we are certainly starting to become aware of these issues and the immediacy and the imminence of solving those problems now <clears throat> what uh, dr currier has done has written a book that essentially identifies eight discrete technologies that have brought us to these types of situations so Dr. Curry, why don't you tell us a little bit of what those eight technologies are, and then we'll discuss them systematically. Okay, sure. Um, the uh, starting point of the book really is a question. Uh, everyone knows that human beings created technology, but have you considered the possibility that technology created human beings? And the reason I pose this question is a very simple reason, that is that in anthropology we define technology very broadly. It's not just uh, rockets and uh, internet and computers, but it's anything that it involves the deliberate modification of any natural object or substance with forethought to achieve a specific end or to serve a specific purpose. And in this regard, uh, the world was rather startled in about, about 50 years ago when Jane Goodall discovered that chimpanzees in the wild were actually making tools and using them for specific purposes. Now, the very first tool that she discovered was the termite stick, which uh, many of you are probably familiar with, where a chimpanzee breaks a branch off a tree, strips the leaves off the branch, and sticks the branch into a termite nest to fish out termites, which is one of its favorite foods. Well, it turns out that chimpanzees in the wild have created at least 20, and by some counts, almost 25 different tools using <coughs> substances, natural substances, uh, and, and modifying them to serve specific purposes. Uh, they, uh, some chimpanzees use a hammer and anvil to crack open nuts. Other chimpanzees make spears uh, out of long sticks, which they sharpen with their teeth, and they use to kill uh, a, a kind of primate called a bush baby that they uh, stab while it's asleep inside of a hollow tree. Uh, and so since the chimpanzee is our closest relative, and since the chimpanzee is making tools and using tools, 
it stands to reason that uh, our uh, very primitive ancestors who lived in the trees were also making tools, and that tools that did the making and using of tools actually occurred before humans evolved. Now, some of you may say, well, stone tools are not that old. The oldest stone tools are only about 2 million years old, and humans or hominids that walk upright are at least 5 million years old, and this is true. But before there were stone tools, there were tools of wood and other natural vegetation, and none of these tools could possibly have survived for millions of years. So they've all disappeared. And uh, probably the first stone tools were actually created in order to sharpen uh, the wooden tools that we use. Now, in the history of humanity, I felt that there were eight transformational technologies that uh, really changed not only the human body, but human society and human life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just recount them, and then we can uh, explore uh, whichever ones you're interested in, sure. starting with the uh, spear. But the first was the uh, invention of the long spear and digging stick by uh, proto-humans, the second was the uh, use of fire. The uh, uh, third was the technology of clothing and shelter. The fourth was the technology of agriculture. The fifth was the technology of symbolic communication, and we can discuss whether that was really a technology, but I can argue that it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sixth was the technologies of interaction, uh, sh- seagoing ships, the wheel, writing, things that allowed people to communicate over tremendous distances of time and space and that led to the birth of civilization. Uh, the uh, sixth was the, uh, I'm sorry, the seventh was the development of precision machinery, which actually occurred in medieval times in Western Europe and ultimately led to the Industrial Revolution, which could never have occurred as long as people were only using tools made by hand. And the uh, last one, the eighth one, is the technology of digital communications, which is now transforming our own lives today. Well, you have certainly identified these developments in a nice sort of chronological Order. I, I want to go back to what you had talking about. You had started talking about, which is the initial developments, and those are effectively the initial developments of the human uh, condition, yes. which uh, go back to evolutionary issues, which uh, most of our listeners are familiar is a, with, and and is a topic that has really, really increased the, in its knowledge base over the past five to ten years, which this thing, such things as the human genome, uh, recent fossil finds of early hominids all over the place, but of course concentrating in Africa, the entire out-of-Africa hypothesis. But you had made mention of something that I think is very striking and which we really have not discussed it. At, at, on the show at, until now, and that is uh, Jane Goodall's groundbreaking explorations into the use of tools 
by greater apes, um, and uh, specifically chimps and the use of digging sticks, which, as you clearly are familiar with, are not part of the archaeological record because those are per- perishable remains. They don't survive. And, okay. and, and I think, though, I mean, going back even to when I was a student, which is a long time ago, um, we had been discussing these sorts of things. And I think even uh, back in the 60s, uh, when Jane Goodall was, was doing a lot of her work, I think there was a recognition that that uh, uh, stone tools simply are the uh, initial or the oldest survivable or surviving uh, components of the toolkits that hominids started using. And I think there was a recognition that chimps and uh, other other greater apes were were using them and that they, they, um, they... they were very, very critical in uh, in changing things. So the question becomes: it's, it becomes a chicken or the egg situation. Did they start doing it, and that did did that promote their descent from arboreal environments and just uh, start to essentially come down from the trees and start concentrating their activities? on the ground and then bipedalism emerged in evolutionary fashion as they started to understand that there were all these resources on the ground. How, what is your perspective on that? Well, first of all, the idea that our ancestors developed bipedal locomotion, walking and running with the hind legs, because they adapted to a life on the ground doesn't really hold water because if you look at other primates that the transition between an arboreal existence and a terrestrial existence, they all stayed quadrupedal. Not a single one of them became bipedal. And these include uh, baboons and vervets and uh, patus monkeys and many other, uh, both apes and monkeys. So... Uh, the question then becomes, well, what was different about our ancestors that caused them to start walking and running in an upright fashion? And the answer that I came up with was that they began to use spears for defense and for hunting and digging sticks for finding below-ground food resources. Now, the reason that I came to this conclusion is very simple. And it's something that has never really been adequately explained. And that is that the very earliest examples of bipedal hominids, or hominins, if you will, Mm -hmm. comes from the finds of Artipithecus, updated about four and a half million years ago. And Artipithecus is is a terribly important fossil because it's it's almost a complete skeleton. There are other fossils from this very early time period, but they are usually very fragmentary, uh, sometimes consisting only of a single bone. But Artipithecus is a nearly complete skeleton, and not only was it clearly bipedal, but, and this is terribly important, it was losing its canine teeth that all other primates used to defend themselves. And if you look at the canine teeth of a chimpanzee, which is genetically our closest relative, they are long, they are razor sharp, and they are formidable. And a chimpanzee can inflict terrible damage on any of its uh, natural enemies, such as leopards, 
with these tremendous, powerful canine teeth. But hominids, as soon as they started going upright, lost their canine teeth. Well, then the question becomes, how could our ancestors have survived for millions of years without, with only their, quote, bare hands to defend themselves? Mm-hmm. There's no way you can fight off a leopard, a lion, a hyena, a cave bear, or any of the other predators that preyed on these hominids using your bare hands because we have alone among all animals no biological weapons. And if we had no biological weapons, then uh, the simplest and most direct explanation is we had technological weapons. And in fact, I defy anybody to come up with a scenario in which hominids could have survived in this kind of environment full of these terrible predators with only their bare hands to defend themselves. And so, we will we will we'll come back with a follow-up to that very fascinating discussion on the earliest technologies that have taken us uh, well into a series of uh, transformative sequences in the human condition right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Most successful people have a strategy for their personal and professional advancement. They understand the value of learning from other people who know how to reach their goals and enjoy their lives. You can live life on your terms at home, work, play, and in the community. Join Lori and industry leaders as they share practical insights with you. Only on In It Together with Lori Lynn Green. Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our program. 
Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My special guest today is Dr. Richard Courier, who has uh, just published a book called Unbound, How A Technologies Made Us Human, Transformed Society, and Brought Our World to the Brink. And we have discussed uh, the major changes in, in the contemporary world and, and how they are related to human impacts on the environment. And uh, Dr. Courier's book is sort of a, a chronological logical reconstruction, if you will, of uh, some key changes in adaptation and the human condition that explain essentially how we got to where we are today. We had talked about the first change, which is uh, how hominids began using tools and how that basically changed the entire nature of human evolution and essentially accounts for uh, people walking bipedalism on the earth. Let's talk about um, the uh, next sequence and series of changes that would probably take us essentially from earliest human evolutionary phases, which I guess we could just sort of, sort of for argument's sake, start it, say started around five million years ago if we just want it without getting into all the repercussions of that. But take us basically from five million through the through uh, up until essentially a Neolithic period, which began around ten thousand years ago. And then, what are the three big changes here, uh, Dr. Curry, that you would like to discuss? Fire, clothing and shelter, and symbolism. So, fire uh, occurred. The use of fire by hominids occurred very early in our evolutionary history. Uh, probably about 1.75 million years ago, and it led to some very radical changes. First of all, this was probably the reason we lost our body hair. I think that our ancestors probably had uh, furry bodies until then. Uh, secondly, it uh, led to something completely unique in the animal kingdom, and that is cooking food. If you think about it, no other animal cooks food. And uh, third, it, it uh, made it possible for us to extend the time of wakefulness. And this is very important because in the tropics, uh, the sun sets with a crash and the night comes on in just a few minutes and it goes from daylight to darkness uh, very, very suddenly. And then uh, throughout the tropics, the uh, in all seasons, the day and the night are pretty much the same. So um, most of the primates, the modern primates, are diurnal. They are active during the day. But our ancestors, once they had fire, they could safely stay not only on the ground because the predators did not want to come near the fire, but they could stay awake and they could talk and they could communicate, and they could make things. Mm -hmm. And this was a huge change. Cooking also was a huge change because uh, it requires much less energy to digest cooked food uh, and to chew cooked food. You know, chimpanzees have to chew their food about five hours a day. We chew our food on average about 30 minutes a day, although we talk a lot right. of times while we're chewing. But the actual chewing doesn't take very long. And the reason this is important is that the brain is a very energy-hungry organ. It's one of the most... It, it, 
it actually uses 15 times as much energy as the rest of the body uh, when the body's at rest. And in order to support a brain that's basically triple the size of a uh, of an ape brain, uh, we may have had to actually cook our food so that we could uh, derive enough nourishment from uh, food that we didn't have take a long time to to chew or to digest. So, uh, and finally, uh, fire made it possible for us to abandon. Uh, sleeping in the trees, which apparently the early hominids were all tree dwellers as well as ground dwellers, and they had to uh, climb into the trees at night to be safe. Fire um, made it possible for them to uh, become fully terrestrial. And then clothing and shelter. Now, this is something that there's been a lot of argument about because none of these things have lasted for hundreds of thousands of years, but um, in uh, the period after the uh, control of fire between two million years ago and one and a half million years ago, our ancestors migrated out of Africa and began to populate all of Eurasia from England all the way to China. And in the last... uh, 500,000 years, they populated the northern regions north of the 40th parallel where the winters were very cold. And there's no way a naked human could have survived in these kinds of climates without some kind of clothing and shelter. And by the way, uh, when your brain triples in size, the infant uh, has a much larger head. And it's very hard for the infant to be, a human infant to be born as anybody who's seen a dog or a cat give birth knows, that happens in a matter of minutes. It takes us hours, and it's painful and dangerous. This is because the pelvic opening uh, had to be fixed in size in order for us to walk on two legs, but the brain kept getting bigger. And so the uh, solution uh, to the problem of getting the infant out of the birth canal uh, seem to be a earlier and earlier birth, what, what they call a semi-premature or pseudo-premature birth, in which the human infant is the most helpless infant right. in the animal kingdom. And without uh, uh, furs to wrap the child in, without cloaks to keep the rain off, without shelters to get in out of the cold, it's unlikely these premature infants would have survived, and it's unlikely we would be as brainy as we became. Let's go back to your discussion of the discovery of fire and um, the connection, obviously, which is a, a, obviously a very direct one, and the preparation of foods and foodstuffs and the diversification of diet. What, uh, what is the archaeological evidence that you're bringing to bear on the antiquity of fire? Because there, there is some controversy about this. There's a lot of controversy about it, uh, but uh, in the last two or three years, there have been uh, discoveries in South Africa in cave sites right. that, that were more than one and a half million years old that prove conclusively that hominids that were living in those cave sites were cooking meat. And there's a lot of, uh, there are actually thousands of bones of 
prey mm-hmm. uh, that were uh, burned and charred by fires, and there's no way fires could have gotten deep inside these caves uh, over a period of tens of thousands of years. So this is a conclusion. Other than being introduced. Well, that's exactly right. It had to be brought into the cave, and it had to be brought in by hominids, because no other animal carries fire from place to place. Only we do. Right. And also, uh, something you mentioned earlier, which is the range of foods available to hominids was greatly expanded by cooking, because there's a lot of vegetable foods that are poisonous, uh, but cooking destroys the toxins and poisons and uh, the same goes for meat that is uh, scavenged from lion kills and uh, the kills of other animals. Uh, in the tropics, that meat uh, decays very rapidly, and neither chimps nor humans will eat decaying meat. But by cooking it, uh, we were able to destroy the bacteria uh, that were infesting the meat and make it safe to eat. So, and, and also um, make tough meat. Uh, rendered more uh, tender and more digestible. And, and so, one of the right, and and one of the points that you brought up, and 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 I think some of us, and 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 certainly people who are not involved in this field, is uh, some concepts that emerged actually quite a while ago, which was that early people, or the early hominins, and even the earliest human forms, these were people who were surrounded by lots of foodstuffs. And there was yeah. a lot of availability, and uh, this idea that there was a tremendous scarcity of food stuff is basically flies in the face of knowledge, which uh, basically says that uh, the environment was certainly not despoiled, and and most ecozones furnish uh, foodstuffs of a certain type, and uh, with people just wandering around, surely there was competition from prey and predators, but by and large, there was quite an availability of it, and uh, I guess against that backdrop, the use of fire even expanded and enhanced the ability to uh, to essentially sculpt the diet, if you will. Absolutely. In fact, uh, the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert, which is a very uh, spare environment, where foodstuffs are hard to find, uh, only spend 18 hours a week actually finding food. Right. They, uh, they find all they need in less than a half-time job. So I think this was probably a myth invented by our agricultural ancestors. <laughs> That's probably true. It's probably due. Scarcity, basically, was not that much of an issue. And I guess that's one of the issues that um, we'd like to to look at going forward. But the preparation of food, I guess, is, as you said, a very major part of what we're talking about. And then why don't you tell us a little bit about symbolism? Symbolism began uh, at least 50,000 years ago with anatomically modern humans. And we know this because there are thousands, tens of thousands of uh, symbolic drawings and right. uh, things left in the caves inhabited by Paleolithic people from 50,000 to at least 50, 15,000 years ago. So we know that they use symbols and we presume that they had language. We don't really think language uh, emerged full-blown with the development of civilization and writing. We really think it's much older than that, probably uh, 300,000 years 
old at least. Um, but the importance of symbolism is that, and language is that it enabled people to share information throughout an entire group and not just the information a person could learn in its lifetime, but you could explain things to children and to your fellow humans, uh, tell them where to go to find food, tell them how to hunt a certain kind of animal, and so on. And so this kind of shared knowledge hugely in, in, increased the pool of knowledge available to humans. And I think that's why... Uh, the humans were able to develop agriculture during the last interglacial when the most recent ice age ended, whereas before that, uh, I don't think language had developed to the point where uh, humans could use all the knowledge they would need to grow crops and raise animals, um, even though there were warming periods that occurred farther back in time. And we will come back with our final episode, with our final segment, excuse me, in this very enlightening discussion with Dr. Richard Courier on essentially eight technologies that basically change the world. And we'll be right back after these words. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein. We having, we're having a very fascinating discussion with Dr. Richard Currier, who has just published a volume called Unbound, How Eight Technologies Made Us Human, Transformed Society, and brought, brought our world to the brink. And we have gone through these eight technologies 
technologies in a very sort of systematic and chronologically structured fashion. And at this point, I think for a lack of a better and, and, and for sort of a crude demarcation in terms of where we are in terms of time, the last 10,000 years are the period that we know as the Holocene. It's also the period during which um, cultural transformations were very rapid. Uh, we had basically gone through most of the physical evolutionary phases, and now we're starting to get into organized societies, agriculture, complex societies. And let's talk, if we can, Dr. Courier, about change changes that are Neolithic and subsequent, basically dealing with the last 10,000 years and the remaining time that we have for the program. Okay, well, the Holocene begins, of course, with the invention of agriculture. This was a revolution in human life because for the first time in human history, people could live in one place. They didn't have to uh, travel constantly in search of food. Uh, children became economically important, which they were not in hunting and gathering times. Uh, land and wealth could be inherited from parents to children and through the generations. And this led to the formation of permanent socioeconomic classes and to craft specialization. People became potters, tanners, weavers, carpenters, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, development of agriculture combined with language made possible the birth of civilization. And in my view, civilizations became possible because of the seventh tech, uh, the sixth technology, which was really a complex of technologies, and I called them technologies of interaction because these were the technologies that allowed people to interact over time and space, to travel, to trade, and to communicate with very large numbers of their fellow human beings, specifically seagoing ships, which uh, actually were uh, developed well before the beginnings of civilization, a writing which came into use as civilization emerged, and the wheel which uh, appeared shortly before civilized life and spread like wildfire uh, throughout the ancient world. So uh, shipping, riding, and the wheel allowed people to communicate and to travel over huge amounts of time and space that they never were able to before. And this is what I think allowed people to organize themselves into large-scale societies that civilized uh, societies represented. So you would claim that these inventions essentially are the underpinnings of complex societies? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, and then something very interesting happened. Uh, uh, civilization arose in at least three locations, really at least four locations, uh, three of them in the old world, one in the Fertile Crescent, one in the uh, India, and one in China, and then a fourth location in the New World, actually both in the Valley of Mexico and in South America. South America, of course. So uh, civilization uh, was uh, developing for a long, long time, thousands of years, and, uh, of course, there was the bronze, the development of bronze and the development of iron, uh, but nothing really ch- 
changed that much. Or most societies were organized as city-states. They had armies. They had bureaucracies. They had uh, religious priesthoods. Um, but uh, the the basic structure of society remained the same throughout the world. And then something very interesting happened in medieval Europe. People wanted to be able to tell time more exactly than they could with the hourglasses and sundials of the past. Mm -hmm. And they started building mechanical clocks. And these mechanical clocks led to the development of what we call machine tools, machine tools being machines that create parts for other machines. And the reason machine tools were important is it allowed people to create precision machinery. Now, if you think about how uh, metal was worked in the past. It was always worked by hand on a hammer and an anvil, and you can make knives and, and axes and things of that nature, swords and armor with a hammer and anvil, but you cannot make a gear that's precisely designed with every tooth exactly the same size and shape to create a, a, uh, an accurate mechanical clock, and you cannot make a piston and cylinder, and you cannot make a printing press, and all of these things required precision machinery, and it was the Europeans that invented precision machinery, and that led, I think, to the uh, worldwide uh, spread of European culture throughout the world until the 20th century when the Far Eastern cultures and other cultures also adopted precision machinery and came up to speed. So, so this is... A- this is a change that, so this is the change, precision machinery, uh, clearly one that's lasted for a while because it has many permutations. It, uh, I don't know, is, is sort of a phenomenon of the uh, earlier, actually, than the Industrial Revolution. And um, then it just sort of took off and gave rise to the types of manufacturing and, and production industries that that we're familiar with that went into the 20th century. I'm interested in your last technology, though. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, the last technology is digital technologies. And so we asked the question, what new metamorphosis in human life and society might flow from the invention of digital technologies? And, of course, digital technologies are very new. Uh, They've occurred in our lifetime. And so we don't know ultimately where they will go. But one thing is clear. It has made digital technology has made international travel vastly safer, faster, and more affordable as, than ever before because of satellite systems, because of computerized aircraft and uh, aviation systems. And do you know that international tourist visits just in the 65 years between 1950 and today, have gone from uh, less than 100 million to more than a billion, an increase mm. of, of uh, about tenfold in just a human lifetime. They are now, and now uh, the transportation systems that are made possible by computers have led to an explosion in world trade, have led to an explosion in communication and through social media have allowed people now to join groups, share opinions, organize events, and made a huge impact 
on political and cultural life. So the development of digitally enhanced technologies of interaction has made it possible for people throughout the world to visit, trade, and communicate with each other as quickly and easily and affordably as Neolithic farmers once visited, traded, and communicated with their neighboring villages. And this actually might lead to a new fusion, uh, just as ancient people fused into urban civilization and industrial people fused into industrial nation-states. By the way, out of the 200 nation-states in existence today, 177 of them came into being after the year 1900. Right. And so we're in the midst of this, I assume, and so uh, we're still going to have to puzzle out how those developments are ultimately going to bear out. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end the program. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Richard Currier, for essentially structuring the key developments in the human condition in a very, very systematic and logical way, I would think. And uh, we look forward to follow-up and to your future research and the types of advances in um, thought and in interpretation that are about to come forth based on some of your research. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And we will be back with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology next week. Thank you and good evening to all. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.